let's collaborate where we can and work together where we can and learn how to coexist where we can't. It's always been really fun for me to have conversations with people who do politics for a living. I say do because politics can sometimes be an act more than anything else, and no one seems to understand that better than today's guest. Hey everyone, it's Rhoda, and I'm so happy to be back with you for episode 153 of the Assyrian Podcast. After nearly two years, I had the opportunity to finally record an in-person interview with our guest for this week, Steve Oshana. I was slated to make a trip out to D.C. in March of 2020 to meet with a group of Assyrians and interview a few of them for the podcast. Well, the universe had other plans for March of 2020, and although I hope to make it out there to D.C. sooner than later, I'm glad I was able to find some time with Steve while he was in Detroit for a wedding. Steve is the executive director of A Demand for Action, which is an advocacy group that works for the protection of Assyrians and other minorities in Iraq and Syria. By day, Steve is a political consultant or lobbyist working in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we had a chance to talk about politics, what lobbyists do, and how Steve finds common ground with politicians he rarely agrees with on most issues. Steve makes no qualms about his party allegiances. After all, he is a part of the Democratic National Committee. But hearing him talk about his motto and what matters most when it comes to his work was interesting. He is sarcastic and doesn't shy away from cynicism. But I also think he is hopeful and earnest in his desire to make an impact. I also really liked hearing his story about how he came into politics as a teenager and his connections with Chicago politicians like Reverend Jesse Jackson and Barack Obama. Before we get to the interview, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? Well, John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. And now, here's today's guest, Steve Oshana. Steve, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Washington, D.C. strikes me as the kind of place where a lot of people live, but not a lot of people are from. So... Where are you from? So I was born and raised in in Illinois. Uh, I was born in Chicago, uh, lived in Skokie, 
uh, and then during college and undergrad, I lived uh, in back in the city. Uh, yeah, so Illinois, Chicago kind of area. My you know most of my adult life, um, I came to DC just immediately after undergrad, and I've been there ever since. It's going to be 13 years, like next week. Wow. So, so yeah, it's been a long time. How did your parents end up in Chicago? Um, my parents are both you know Iraqi uh, immigrants. They they came here from Iraq. Um, they got married in Illinois. I, you know, like most Assyrians, I think they just kind of ended up there because that's where Assyrians were going because that's where the factory jobs were. Um, and, you know, so yeah, that's like kind of how, how we ended up there. Uh, what did you study in undergrad? Uh, economics and sociology. Okay. Yeah. Tell me what uh, prompted your move to D.C. in 2008? So um, I had, shortly before moving to D.C., um, started getting involved with Assyrian activism. Uh, and there was prior to... Although my, my activism prior was never with Assyrians uh, when I was a young activist. Um, I did mostly civil rights activism um, in, the, in the black community. Uh, and so, you know, I got sort of pulled into Assyrian activism because uh, an Assyrian organization needed uh, help with a congressman from the South Side who I had a relationship with, um, Jesse Jackson Jr. Um, and so they kind of asked me if I could help them sort of with a relationship with him on some stuff they were working on. And um, after that, they're like, hey, like you gotta come do this. And um, you know, they formed an organization and brought me out there for to work. The organization ran out of money, like you know, a few months in, and um, I just kind of stuck around and kept kept doing it. And yeah, that's kind of how we uh, ended up here. What led to your activism in the black community in Chicago? You know, I worked. I was working at a restaurant when I was like. I don't know, maybe like 16. And um, one of the guys who was like a host there, it was an older guy, we were just like talking about, you know, uh, inequality and, 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 you know, my like, you know, desire to sort of, you know, address issues like income inequality and access to education. And uh, he's like, he's like, you got to come to Rainbow Push, which is uh, Jesse Jackson Sr.'s organization. And he's like, just come hear the message. And, you know, I went down the 50th and Drexel on the South Side and I, I listened to Jesse Jackson preach and I'm, I was floored by the guy. And I just started volunteering with them and I ended up marching with, with Reverend Jackson uh, in Bronzeville once, uh, protesting tax rate heights in, uh, in the Bronzeville neighborhood. We were protesting, we were, uh, you know, protesting the uh, Cook County Assessor at the time, David Orr. Uh, they were like raising taxes to basically pushing people out of their homes. And so Rainbow Push was very involved in, um, in that. That, that was kind of how that, that activism started. What are some of the things you would say you learned from that period in your life that you've carried with you in Assyrian activism and activism beyond that? To me, the most important thing is how just critical coalitions are and and you know working together and like it's not just about Assyrians it's not just about it can't just be like the black community for the black community and the Assyrian community for the Assyrian community like we're so intertwined and one of the most just kind of how I got involved with the Assyrians like I said was Jesse Jackson Jr. was a appropriator. He was on the Appropriations Committee. There was an Assyrian organization working on appropriations to get money to the Nineveh plane. They like weren't able to get it through committee because they just didn't have the votes. And the, the chairman of this committee was um, Jesse Jackson Jr. of a, of the subcommittee, and he like wasn't talking to them. Like he, you know, they'd reach out, nothing. Like no return phone calls. They couldn't get a staff meeting, and they came to me and they're like, you know. 
you have a relationship with this guy, like we need your help. And I said, sure. I set up a meeting with the legislative director, flew into DC, like a couple of weeks later, committee vote came up, you know, him and Mark Kirk kind of talked, shook hands, deal was done, like the appropriations went through. And years later, I mean, this was like, and Jesse had some, some legal issues as most of us know. And um, I ran into his legislative director at the time and kind of asked him, you know, like, like, why did Jesse help us? You know, like he didn't, he had no Assyrian constituents. He had, knows nothing really about the Nineveh plane. I mean, this is, this is just not his fight. And he said, because you marched with his father. And, you know, when I marched with Reverend Jackson, I didn't, it wasn't like, you know, I was a teenager just wanting to, to do that. I didn't think like, okay, this was going to be a relationship that helped years down the line. Um, but that line, because you marched, was like, like you stood with us when you didn't, had no real reason to, other than you cared, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that, like, for me, that was just such an important lesson of like we got we have to be working with other communities we have to and and it can't be because we expect something in return it just you know you you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and you know that's how progress happens i'm reminded have you watched uh, judas and the black messiah i have not no i am reminded of the Black Panthers at some point involving other communities other than black communities and that's kind of how their strength um, came about and why they became very dangerous yeah I was too young like at the, to, for, the, for the Panthers like I in my heart I, w- I wanted to be a Panther so bad like I, I would have totally I would have totally been a Panther I think like I, I loved I loved what they you know what they had to say in a lot of ways I highly recommend the movie yeah it's okay. a good one um, so you moved to DC to do this work yeah. um, and then you stuck around yeah I just you know I like the city you know I, I at one point I, I wanted to get out of politics and I wanted to work in restaurants because my, my actually my dream career was never political. I wanted to be a chef. Uh, but then, Quite a departure. Yeah, I really wanted to be a chef and then just it turned out it was way too hard. Um, and so I'm like, you know, politics is easy here. Like, I just like sit around being like, you should say this when you're on CNN. And, you know, like working in a restaurant is hard work. Like I can't, I'm not, I'm too soft for that. Uh, but yeah, so I stuck around in the city and I had gotten out of politics. Um, and then I kind of got pulled back into it in 2014 um, after ISIS invaded Mosul. And there was, you know, I kind of got asked again to, to come back and, um, and, and help the, the community out. So that's kind of how I got back into it. And yeah, so here we are. What's yeah. your day job these days? Uh, I'm a political consultant. I, you know, I do government affairs consulting. So with campaigns and candidates, um, with companies to help them manage their relationships with the government uh, on, you know, public policy and how it affects their companies, how it affects their issues. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, uh, I'm, as, as someone reminds me on Facebook, at least like once a month, I'm a hack. So, yeah. <laughs> a so political hack. I'm a political <laughs> hack. What are, you know, what, what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> um, I, we were talking about the work of lobbyists and I said to you that um, my two reference points are like 
oil tycoons and pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and then Sidney Allen Wade um, from The American President, which is one of my favorite movies. And I'm sure that truth or the bulk of it lies somewhere in the middle. <laughs> you know, I, I've never represented an oil company. Uh, I've considered like, I, you know, I, because I, you know, my, my main sort of focus is Assyrian activism. Like I only sort of take clients that I, I'm, I don't feel, you know, I feel okay with. Um, I've considered like going full villain and like being like a tobacco lobbyist or something. Um, I just, I like the idea of just like being like the villain lobbyist. I think it's kind of fun, but I just, I haven't had the heart to do it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's not, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't, you know, the, the, it's not quite as like sexy as it is on TV or in the movies. Um, a lot of it's just, you know, like arguing with committee staff over whether there should be a semicolon or a colon here. Is it a comma? Is it like, how do you break up this, this whereas clause with this here to four clause? Like, you know, like the, it's, it's a whole, it's, it's, it's very like kind of wonky and, um, a lot of it's like relationship based so like you know you you probably spend more time like building relationships and you do talking about policy and you know because at the end of the day you know no one's going to want to work with you if they don't like you so it's, it's a very kind of like chummy like you know per, like people like job um so it's just a lot of you know developing relationships so um there's not like many you know like dramatic moments i mean there are like there 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 have been like some when people recall like their house of cards show or whatever they're watching they're like is it like this i'm like you know like there are moments where it's like really like all the president's men like sexy um but they're few and far between but you know there there have been a couple of those moments where like i felt like really good about myself because i did something cool and it was you know there was like a moment but uh (laughs) most of it's just kind of you know wonky legislative stuff how do you decide what clients to take you said you know you don't want to feel conflicted about them so like yeah um you know i mean it's sort of uh, my basically my red lines so like there's like no i will i will never represent a country that oppresses my people like no iran no iraq no saudi arabia um really people who fund terrorism you know no oil countries no no Kurds, obviously, um, like no KRG. Like, I would never represent anything like Azerbaijan, that kind of stuff, Turkey, out of the question, 100%. No oil companies, only because of the sort of impact that oil exploration um, in the Middle East has had on Assyrians. I just think it's too, too negative. Um, aside from that, you know, I like, I don't. I'm not, you know, it's just sort of like who, like whether I can help them or not. A lot of times, you know, normally the way you sort of end up in front of a client is because you could help them. So, like, you know, the people who I don't want to represent probably have never approached me. Like, tobacco has never approached me. Although a couple of like bad people have approached me uh, who I didn't want to, who I had no interest in working with. And, you know, I, I've said some mean things and walked out of some meetings and like, are you kidding me? Like, you actually think I'm going to represent you and uh, kind of a thing. But yeah, that's kind of how we end up with it. Um, you said a lot of your work is like arguing with like legislative staff about you yeah. know, certain wording and things like that. What does a typical day look like for you? Is there a typical day? Yeah, there's no typical day. I mean, during COVID, it's been a lot of like, you know, taking calls from the couch, like, you know, slamming LaCroix and um, just like throwing the cans across the room uh, when I feel good about myself. Um, but, you know, you know, you normally you'll, you'll have meetings in the Hill. You'll be talking depending on what, what issues I'm working on 
for whom um, I see the Assyrian stuff takes up like 80% of my time. So mostly it's Assyrian stuff. A lot of meetings with staff, just, you know, like up, like briefing them on issues, talking about what legislation is coming up at that point. So like around the appropriations time, you know, we do that defense when defense bills coming up, um, when the NDA is coming up, there's a lot of conversations about that. And then there's like a lot of like, you know, little luncheons and, and happy hours and stuff just to like make connections fundraisers yeah maintain the relationships it's a lot of, it's a lot of relationships you know like again like there's you know as I remind people like Assyrians have basically no power in like the in the literal sense like we like we're not a huge voting block on the congressional level and so like a lot of what we're able to do we're just able to do because of relationships that we have and you know the guys that like and, 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 and women who are like I, you know worked as interns when I was like 23 like we all kind of went up through the ranks and you know they're like running congressional offices or they might be in some of them are in congress now if no one if people don't like you they're not going to work with you this idea of like the 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 genius who's a jerk like nobody cares no one no one cares how smart you are if you're a jerk no one's going to talk to you and we've seen that happen with assyrians a lot like a lot of really smart assyrians will come to try to like do their thing in dc and like talk to policymakers, but they're just really abrasive or like they just they don't like fit in with the culture and they just you know they, they can't they can't get it done and it's all about relationships one of my favorite things to think about and talk about is identities um, and the as an Assyrian the different identities that we um, oftentimes straddle you said something to me the other day about how your identity as a progressive in terms of U.S. politics and the work that you do uh, with Christians in the Middle East allows you to straddle two very different spaces oftentimes um, because usually the people who uh, work on behalf of Christians tend to be more conservative and they might not, you might not agree with them on U.S. politics. Right, on abortion. (laughs) Sure. Um, But that you still work with them to move your agenda forward. How do you think those two parts of your identity have been an advantage to you? You know, I think it's like, for me, the biggest advantage has been like being able to, to bridge gaps where gaps exist. Like one of our really close friends on the Hill is Ted Cruz, who's, you know, a guy who like I have. I'm shocked. Right. Most people are. And it's weird because like I'm like good friends with his staff and like I've like known them before we worked before I did this and like I said it's so it's so like just personal like we're just we're friends and you know like if, if I have an issue that I can work with Ted on with Senator Cruz like you know why shouldn't we get that win where we can but you know like we're so in in some cases like I've you know I've gotten like Ted Cruz and Dick Durbin to work on stuff together like on Assyrian's behalf and you know a lot of people are kind of surprised to see their names in the same letters and you know the my motto like for my like just mo for for life in general and and especially for for political work is let's collaborate where we can and work together where we can and learn how to coexist where we can't mm. and you know we don't have to like each other we don't have to agree on everything but like even someone who like i have a serious issue with with like most of what he stands for if he's supporting assyrians and christians in the middle east then why wouldn't i work with him on those things and and in some cases there it creates conflicts like you know like i'm, I'm part of the, the dnc and the dnc's ethnic council and will there'll be democrats running against ted cruz who i'm sort of expected to support but i don't go against ted cruz ted cruz helped me out a lot of times he helped the syrians out a lot of times when he really didn't have to 
I'll, I won't campaign. I mean, if you like look at my social, like I'll I'll criticize Mitch McConnell or anyone else. I've never said anything bad about T- Senator Cruz because it's I I I feel like I owe him that courtesy for what he's done for us. I that's super interesting to me because. That's not the culture that um, I feel like as an outsider um, can see existing in D.C. Oh, in D.C. it's fine. It's funny. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really crazy. Like when I see like the only people who I ever argue with are Syrians. <laughs> and it's like Syrians on Facebook who like live in Skokie or in suburban Detroit or like like in D- like in Washington, like we're adversaries, but we're friends. It's not like it's just business. It's just it's you know, it's like. You know, we, we, we run campaigns against each other. We have opposing politics and, and we fight. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, like it's over, you know, we hang out and, you know, shoot the breeze. It's not like, I, like it's such a, like the polarization, like you see it. I, I think a lot of it is dramatic for like, they, they do it to like build up the drama. And, and there is like, there are some people who are just like legitimately like evil and bad and like, but like, just staff is fine like they're just you know they're people my age and and we're kind of you know we're just talking and, and disagree it's not but also like dc is like a very like wonky city so like a lot of the conservatives in dc are like real what i would call real conservatives like the lockean like what you would call classical liberals right uh and i don't mean liberal like in the progressive sense but like the classical liberal you know like we can like like their conservatism is driven by like ideas of like tocqueville and and Locke and and I can connect with that because that's a legitimate political philosophy. And like, I don't agree with it necessarily, but I see the validity of it. I see the validity of like true conservatism. And I think it has some merits and and there are some very positive things it's done. But like what you see in like, somewhere like out in you know, Wisconsin like the, like those conservatives I don't think are like real conservatives I just you know I, I they like big government when you know conservatism is supposed to be about small government right they, they, they like big government when it's controlling women's bodies controlling like who marries whom but then they say like you know we don't like the government you know so it's like if you're gonna be if, you know like the idea of small government I think is a legitimate concept but you have to like think about well, what does that mean? Is like, does it you know, is telling people what they can do with their bodies or who they can marry when they're consenting adults, is that is that limited government? And so for me, like I can I can get along with like conservatives very easily because I think it's a legitimate it's a legitimate ideology. Um, but what we see in the country amongst like people who are like you know think Obama's a Muslim, like, that's not conservative. That's just lunacy. I think, though, what ultimately gives people um, who don't live in D.C. and don't know these people personally um, the idea that they should oppose other people um, who don't agree with them is like the kind of behavior we sometimes see from politicians who do nothing but talk smack about each other um, on Twitter or, you know, on the floor of the house or something. And so it feels like they are kind of stoking the flames, getting people riled up. And then when the day's over, they're going to go have drinks. But the people at home are going to continue to think of others as their enemies if you will yeah there's a lot of truth to that and you know um, I didn't because like I guess for me like I don't see it as hate like I don't 
I don't, I can't hate someone because they want a smaller government. Like, you know, I'd like a smaller government in a lot of ways too. So it's like, I don't hate someone for believing something. I could, you know, disagree with what they believe in. I can potentially hate what they believe in. It doesn't necessarily make them bad people. There's a, a movie called Primal Fear with Richard Gere uh, and Ed Norton, where Ed Norton's like pretending to be this like stuttering guy, and he's accused of like killing someone. There's this great scene where Richard Gere's like at a bar, and they're asking him like, "Why do you def- why do you defend these murderers? Like you like you're getting murderers off the hook, and you're helping horrible people." And he says, "He's like, why do you think I do it? He's like, do you think it's because of the money? He goes, no, but the money's great. And you know, he's you think it's because of the women? He's like, no." but that's pretty awesome too. He's like, I do it because not all people who do bad things are bad people. And and that stuck with me since I was a kid, this idea that like there are good people who maybe believe things that are, I think are bad, right? Like I, I think denying someone the right to choose what to do with their body is bad. I think it's kind of a it's kind of an evil concept to say like two consenting adults shouldn't be able to enter into a marriage contract. I think that's kind of an evil concept to to say that that's wrong. I mean, it's 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 illegal. You know, it's it's you're basically denying constitutional rights to people because of their because of who they love. And I think that's that's kind of that's kind of crazy because we did we did that in the form of slavery. We did that in the form we redlined neighborhoods, and we have a history of denying Americans constitutional rights based on kind of arbitrary things. I think that's an evil idea. It doesn't mean that every person who doesn't believe in gay marriage, or not not that it's something for you to believe or not believe in. It's it's a legal matter, but. You know, someone who thinks it's wrong, I don't think that makes them an evil person. I don't have to hate that person. You know, they could, these are just people that are products of their environment. Maybe, you know, maybe they grew up in, in, in a certain way and they grew up in like a small town or they didn't like, you know, they haven't been exposed to a lot. And I noticed that like when I'm in like Michigan and stuff, like I'll meet people who've like never left the state. Your view on the world is going to be a little more narrow. I don't think they're bad people. I actually think they're good people. They just, you know, this is sort of how they've they interact with their environment. So I don't think you need to hate anybody. I just you know, and even like like I get attacked by Assyrians all the time. And it's funny because it's only Assyrians who who criticize me and give me a hard time. Never anybody else. And I'm you know, and like I'll see these guys who are like just argue with me endlessly and like call me terrible things and like see them at a wedding and we'll hug and it's like and you know they'll like sometimes people will apologize. I'm like, I'm oh, sorry, I was kind of I kind of lost my temper on that. And I said some things that were. I'm like, bro, it's not that serious. Like it's just to me, like politics is a sport. You know, you get in there, you break a sweat, you you know rough each other up a little bit, and then you know you hit the showers and you call it a day. <laughs> um, we have a friend who says her dad saying was that politics is a rich man's sport. <laughs> I, I don't know about. I don't. I I think that that, that is a. Um, it's, it's happened that way for a lot of reasons, but more and more, no. I mean, even like, it was never, it, American democracy was not meant to be aristocratic. Obviously, it was limited to like, you know, landowners and other folks, and, and it was discriminatory in like horrible ways. But especially as time has gone on, you know, now you have just a really kind of amazing like you're getting a lot more diversity in elected politics but then you know it's expensive to run campaigns it you know it's working in dc is hard because it's a hilariously expensive city to live in and like the internships pay like nothing and so you know you need to be supported by someone typically 
or like in my case, like, you know, like I worked two jobs when I was 23 and in DC, like I had a day job, I waited tables or tended bar at night or something and put yourself through college. When, you, when you're doing like that, it's, it's a lot harder to, to, to do it. It makes it easier. I mean, to be fair, making money has makes a lot of things easier. There are some like remnants of it being a rich man's game, and and I specifically remember like when I, I remember like a few years ago, maybe five six years ago. Um, so when I worked in the restaurant industry, I worked I worked in the the bar in the you know the bar world, and I would like you know make these like fancy cocktails and like magazines and stuff would like write about my cocktails and like I would be on TV like you know talking about this and an Assyrian guy uh, like made fun of me. He like posted a picture of like me like from the Washingtonian magazine like you know pouring a drink and saying like oh like Steve's a successful bartender in DC and like he's qualified to lobby on our behalf like really in like a mocking way my response to that was aside from it being ridiculous like you know I kind of was like you guys are supposed to be the party who calls us elitists you should be glad that like we live in a country where someone who tended bar five years ago can be a lobbyist, right? And and I saw because and I saw a parallel with that with like AOC with yeah Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, so Sandy, you know when she ran for Congress, like people made fun of her. Like they made fun of her because she was a bartender. And at, this was around the same time that this guy was like making fun of me. And I'm like, hey man, like, you know, it looks like I might be your congressman at some point too. Like just kind of jokingly to him. They call us like Ivy League elitists. But then like when a bartender runs for Congress, they make fun of them because they're a bartender. You can't have it both ways, right? So there is a little, there are some remnants of that. And, and but it's a free country. Like I came from, you know, a very working class family. Like I went to school in the Pell Grands and, um, you know, like we, we didn't have anything and, and you know, it's, 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 it's a free country. The doors of Washington are open. It's a government of the people for a reason. It's, it's only inaccessible to you if, if you decide that it's inaccessible to you. I think the other thing that kind of reminds me of is I feel like Nowadays, all kinds of people have very political opinions on things that they didn't before, which as much as I might not agree with their political opinions, I think it's fine for people to be more civically engaged in some ways. (laughs) Yeah, even if it's a little crazy. I mean, like, you know, there's like some stuff. I mean, I like, you know. I see some stuff because I have like a lot of Assyrian like friends on social media and like I see some crazy stuff. Like conspiracy theories and and some of it's like weird but i'm also i'm like you know what it, it's like it's awesome that that you're sort of you care enough and and you're in tune enough that that you're like you have a feeling that you're willing to like go online and be like barack obama is a secret muslim i know this is a fact and you know uh it's like obviously it's ridiculous but it's people need to be engaged there is this like idea that like we're like you know ruled by a ruling class it's only that way if you choose to 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 have it that way and that's kind of why i got involved in politics in the first place was you know like i grew up in the assyrian community where my parents and our parents they were victims of their government right the government was there to oppress them the government was was a thing that you were scared of huchma huchma is something you're scared of Assyrians were always just so powerless and like everything happened to us anytime something happened like we were at the mercy of the system and and I just like as a kid I'm like I'm not I can't I will not 
be a victim of a government like the, like these people work for us we vote for them and and I'm going to I'm going to be part of this in one way or another and so it's great that people get involved even even if I don't like what they have to say even if even if I think they're crazy you know what then if you think that's a bad message come bring a better message come bring a if you don't like the person in office find someone to run against them run against them yourself you know my cousin just unseated an 18 year incumbent uh, because she thought she can do a better job and 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 she did it you know she ran and she won like it, I don't know I think it's you got to do it it's your government so yeah I feel like we could talk about politics all day because as much as some people say I don't like politics I'm all, all about it's how awesome. the sausage gets made because <laughs> I think politics is policy and policy is what impacts our day-to-day life and if we don't care about that then we are choosing not to have a say in how our life is yeah right? I have that conversation with my family all the time they're like you know it doesn't affect my life who's in office. I'm like, well, it kind of does. Like, if you're part of a union and you get weekends off, like, that happened because mm-hmm. someone voted that into into existence. And, you know, but, yeah, uh, I could talk about politics all day. I'm <laughs> happy to talk about other stuff. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about a demand for action. Sure. Um, you're currently the executive director. Correct. And I think I saw that it was created in 2014. Is that right? Yeah. So it was created as sort of a response to the uh, ISIS invasion of Mosul. Uh, Nuri Kino, our, our founder and president, you know, put a post online um, kind of just saying, like, I need 10 people who are willing to tweet and talk about what's happening because the media is silent about this. And um, a group got together and then I got connected with them like a couple months later. Um, yeah. And that's kind of how we became a demand for action. This is something I wonder about any organization, but especially sure. Assyrian uh, philanthropic or political ones. Um, what did you all thought was missing from currently existing organizations that you decided to start a demand for action? I, I don't want to denigrate any any organizations. I, I think there's there's room for every voice in our community. At a very basic level, like we didn't really, I don't know, it's funny, like we didn't start a demand for action, like it just kind of got started around us. Um, it was just a very organic, as I would say, spontaneously combusted. It was like the Big Bang. And, you know, demand for action was like the, what came out of the subatomic particles. Um, so, um, we had never had a presence in Washington with like, a full like a professional lobbyist that just there wasn't something that was you know ever really there in, in a you know in a meaningful way in like a in a consistent way people that were like products of dc um but you know the the, the politics is a very small part of what a demand for action does it's, it seems like it's outweigh you know like the, the bigger part but you know we do a lot of humanitarian work we raise a lot of money for for charitable work for helping refugees in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot, a lot of our work is humanitarian. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the policy is one part of it. I like Shakespeare plays, but uh, where I draw the line is where Juliet tells uh, Romeo what's in a name, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Because I do think names are important. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about the name and demand for action. How did you yeah. all come up with that? Oh, see, okay. I thought you were going to go into the whole Assyrian, <laughs> Chaldean, Syriac. Oh, like, no. <laughs> I had like a whole Capulets and Montagues thing ready to go. Like, 
I love quoting Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about that too, but yeah. I was mostly curious about the name of the yeah, organization. I, I had a Hamlet reference for you. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, I'd like to uh, hear that. It, 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 it's, it's all good. We'll, we, we can get to, we'll get to Shakespeare. Um, but um, yeah, the name, I mean, it, you know, uh, the name was like literally people were asking like what do you guys want like we're just demanding action like it wasn't like it, you know we didn't want like Assyrian to be in the name or Chaldean Syriac because we didn't want to fight about like the names or the three names or this and that and you know we're just like we're, just, we were I mean when we started it wasn't it was just like a bunch of people demanding action and um, what kind of action uh, at the, so before I came on board like I, I'm a, I'm a tactician uh nuri is like a more sort of uh he's he's more of a poet uh than i am um you know i i think part of what we're you know what we were demanding were things like humanitarian aid uh military support for uh you know christians assyrian chaldean syriacs and the Nineveh plain in syria you know u.s policy that supported the ambitions of our people and so, you know, that's that. You know, th- those were the things that we were demanding. And you know, the one of the unfortunate things, and I think going back to it now, it actually just kind of the, the light bulb went off um, when you talked about like what was missing in the Assyrian activism previously. You know, it's it's the ask, it's the what, it's the what are you demanding? You know, like I would take Assyrians, like especially like older folks into meetings and they'd come in they'd pound the table and like very emotionally and genuinely talk about how horrible everything is that's happening to them and politicians would ask so what do you want us to do and they didn't have an answer for that and to me a demand for action was sort of the answer to that question like what are what do you want us to do and so like you know for me like I'm a lobbyist and like I you know I come in with what I want before I ever have the conversation about how bad things are like I know what I want I've already written the letter the legislation like you know because like I know like okay this is the appropriations bill this is how we need to like line item this and um, so like I come into congressional offices so like in my case unless I'm bringing Assyrians in like leaders and, and victims and things like that I don't even talk about like the emotional stuff with these offices like I don't go to them and say like it's so bad please help us please you have to help us I come in and say hey listen this horrible thing is happening like here's the legislation it's already written let me know if the congressman is willing to support this that's that's been that's sort of my approach like I don't you know I don't like spend a lot of time talking about the emotional stuff of you know how horrible things are because they know it's on the news which is another big part of what we do is like getting media attention to what's going on in our in our community um so you know that's, that's, I guess that's the long answer to what we're demanding. <laughs> Although we get a lot of, it's funny, I ran into a woman from uh, Moms Demand Action on Gun Violence because uh-huh. I get their mail all the time. Like I get like emails of people be like, what are you doing about gun control? And I'm like, wrong group demanding action. <laughs> and um, so like I ran into this woman from Moms Demand Action on Gun Control and I'm like, I have your mail. I have so many emails of yours. <laughs> I gotta give them to you. <laughs> so. That's hilarious. So let's talk about the name sure. issue, though. Yeah, let's um, talk about it. Interesting that you all decided not to include Assyrian Chaldean because, like, you weren't interested in having that fight. We had the fight anyway, but <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> um, everybody's mad about everything all the time. Like, some people like say it only is Assyrians. Stupid to say Chaldean Syriacs. A lot of Chaldeans, which most Assyrians are Chaldean, especially in Iraq, um, like eighty percent of them are Chaldean, and it's debatable whether they identify as Assyrian or not. I don't 
you know, they kind of don't, but it's fine. You know, they call themselves Sudaya, whatever. It's just like, you know, a lot of our a lot of our volunteers were people who identified as Assyrian, who were what they would, you know, you'd say were Assyrian nationalists. There was Chaldeans. There was a lot of Syriacs in Sweden, some of whom identified as Assyrian, some of whom identified as Syriac, some of whom whatever. And, you know, my thought was, hey, they're all being beheaded. They're all being kidnapped. I really could care less what you call yourself. Right now, like, there's a real problem that we have to address. And I really am not willing to, like, fight over the name. But everybody wanted to fight over the name. And, you know, the result was a lot of people left the organization very early on. Like, there was, like, a core group who, like, wanted us to be, like, a pro-ADM thing. And we just, like, we're, like, we're not going to support any church or political party or, like, we're kind of here for people who are suffering, whatever they call themselves. Um, so there were people who left who were like, well, we don't like that you say Assyrian, Chaldean, Syriac, or we don't like that you mentioned Chaldeans, or we don't like that, you know, you're not supporting this group or this party or this church, or we support, you know, our people who are suffering. I don't care where they go to church. I don't care what their denomination is. Um, that's our, that's our, our thing. We use the name Assyrian, Chaldean, Syriac with the slashes because I think that most people could live with that, right? You have like the extreme, the people that are more extreme, Assyrians who are like Assyrian only, Chaldeans fake, this is whatever. And it may or may not be whatever, I I don't know. But, you know, there is the 10% of people who are there. There's the 10% of Chaldeans who are like, no, you can't use Assyrian. We are Chaldean. We are the Ur of the Chaldees. And, you know, those people we can't satisfy. But I'd say like 70% of people, then there's the Arameans who are like, a different set of you know ideas and there are the people who are on those fringes who are like we can't accept anything but our position a hundred percent or nothing and then there are most people who are like all right i could live with a syrian kelly and syriac i'm personally one of those people who could live with a syrian kelly and syriac some people can't we get criticized constantly and People are like, you're not an Assyrian organization. And I'm like, you know what? We're not. We're not an Assyrian organization in that sense. Like, if your idea of an Assyrian organization is is like to be like militantly like arguing over a name when people are like hurting and we have an opportunity to help them, then no, maybe we're not an Assyrian organization on your part. You know, like we we support policies that help, you know, Yazidis and other people too. So yeah, we're not super militant about it. We just like we just wanted to find an, a way to to say it where it just didn't become a fight. It was a fight. Occasionally, people still argue with us and say like, "You're not an Assyrian organization." I'm like, "Cool, bro. Uh, what else you got?" Um, I often think, you know, nobody and no organization is Nutella or pizza. Not everybody's gonna like you. So. Yeah. <laughs> And there's some people that don't like Nutella. I don't know. You know, I and like I, I'm those I, people do not exist. I know. So put it in a crepe. It's so good. I mean, who it's just good yeah. out of the jar with the spoon. I know. Yeah. Those are those those people. Those are the people I hate. Like I said, I don't hate anyone. I do hate those people. Um, what are some things you consider the biggest accomplishments of a demand for action? I mean, for me, I think our biggest accomplishment is was our, our ability to sort of put together a coalition of people who got the word out 
about what was happening, you know, at a time when nobody wanted to talk about what was happening to Assyrians. Like we were in the New York Times, we were on CNN, we were getting, we, you know, we, our, our, our message got out there and, and it got out there because of a lot of people who came together, who put aside differences, who put aside name issues, who put aside church issues, who were just like, hey, let's, let's do this. I mean, to me, that's like, the biggest accomplishment was that, you know, we brought people together. We brought a lot of new people into it. I'd say more than half of our volunteers are people who have never volunteered for an Assyrian organization. 70% of our board are women. We have LGBTQ supporters and we're, I, I, I'm very, I'm very, very proud of sort of how modern and, and, you know, our, our, our organization was in that sense. Politically, you know, we had a really heavy lift when we did an amendment for the National Defense Authorization Act. What's that? What's that? So that's the basically the annual military bill for the mm-hmm. to put it as simply as possible. It's the bill that authorizes all military spending, and we were able to amend that um, uh, with the support of then Armed Services Chairman uh, Carl Levin, who unfortunately recently passed away. God rest his soul. And uh, we were able to amend that to include language that authorized support for security forces in the Nineveh plane. And so, you know, that was the first time that something like that had, you know, ended up in in, in legislation like that in, in sort of that capacity. It was a really big deal. It didn't. It didn't help as much as we would have hoped it did in the end, but it, it did. And what kind of impact did it have um, on the ground? I think, you know, in, in, the, in the broadest sense, it, it, it started the process of the U.S. military looking at Christian Assyrian security forces as a group that they're not able to support. Whereas before there was no mechanism to support them, now there was. To put it in perspective, Defense contractors and stuff will, they spend millions and millions of dollars a year on amendments like this. It's, it's a big, it's a big lift. I mean, it's a really big lift. And, and I was very, you know, that was really early on in our tenure. And I was very sort of, you know, glad we were able to do that. And that was, that, I think that was a big, that was a big deal. That was kind of the first like big thing that we did. But yeah, so. And when was this? 2015, FY15, okay. uh, NDAA. Um, is Carl Levin a Michigander? He's a Michigander. Okay. He's a senator That's from Michigan. That's what I thought. Senator okay. from Michigan. Uh, he was the chairman of the Armed Services Committee at the time. And um, Any relation to Andy Levin? He's his uncle. Okay. So So Carl's brother... Andy Levin is my representative. Your, con- your congressman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And Andy's a good guy. He, you know, he helps us out a lot. And um, he's, he's been good to, to the community uh, in, in a lot of ways. Nice. What has been your um, biggest challenge as an organization? We're all volunteers. We don't have any like salaried staff. It's always funny because whenever you know, it's like most people that I work with in Washington don't know that I have like another job. <laughs> they just like think I'm like a full time advocate for the demand for action. And I'm like, no, like we don't have staff or anything, and it's it's hard. You know, it's like you know you have to like balancing all of this when everybody involved has like their own careers. They have their own. You know, trying to kind of make this like our de facto kind of full-time thing. I'd say, but the, the hardest part for me personally is like the emotional part of it. Um, and it's something that I don't really talk about because I don't like to talk about it, but like, you know, like especially like in Khabar, when Khabar got, uh, when, those, when those Assyrians got kidnapped there, you know, we'd get like lists of names of people who were kidnapped or who were killed. And like, you know, they like, they look, 
like us and they have our names and and you know it's like you you see this 19 year old and like he has the same name as your little cousin and like that part of it's hard like dealing with that every day was really hard and like that like emotional burden of that particularly when we were working on the arm stuff we did we did both support for Assyrian Christian forces in Syria and in Iraq and um, we had a lot more luck in Syria but you know there was there was a point where when we were pursuing this and, and members of Congress and folks would ask us if one of these young guys dies with a gun in his hand that you got in his hand because of the work you do like how do you deal with that like that part of it's really hard like that part of it's like emotionally really hard and um it's 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 kind of that's that's probably the hardest part is when you when you fail them and there are consequences to that similar when when jimmy al dawood passed away um, I took that really, really personally. Cause and we, this is, for our listeners uh, who may not know, this was the man who was yeah, deported. Yeah, so after Trump got elected, Jimmy was one of the people who ended up getting deported. And we worked on his case, um, trying to find like a third country for him to go to. And uh, we had a solution at one point. Sorry, do you have a tissue or something? Yes. Um, we had like um, we had a solution where, you know, we wanted to have him sent to Armenia instead of to Iraq, um, but the Trump administration said no, uh, that they just they wouldn't make a request to send him to a third country. And when he died, I spent just like months with like sleepless nights, like going through emails, like going through. We went to everyone. We we met with everybody. We you know just like but. You can't help but say, like, could you have done something else? Is there another person I could have talked to? Is there anything else? And, you know, we had very, very high up relationships in the Trump administration. And as high up as we went, it just, you know, it didn't happen. And when he passed away, that was that was really hard. I took that really personally. Um, so, yeah, there was actually an article about that in Politico. They did, like, a feature on that. And it was, like, it was kind of cathartic, in a sense, to, like, be able to tell that story and, like, go back through my emails and, like, just see, like, okay, I think we did everything we could have, but it's still, that's a tough one. When, when, when someone dies like that and, you know, like, you know, they kind of look to you to help them, uh, it's tough. How many people were in the same boat as him in terms of like people from Metro Detroit who got deported? Um, a handful of people actually got deported. There was a, you know, my colleagues and I worked, um, particularly with my colleagues here, the Code Legal Aid, uh, Nadine uh, Kalasha, who's uh, an attorney here and her, her siblings. We all, you know, we worked with ACLU on, on a lawsuit that sort of halted the deportation so people could reopen their cases. Some people ended up getting deported back. Jimmy was the only one who died. But there was a number of people who ended up going back voluntarily because they just didn't want to fight anymore. Mm. But, you know, some people ended up getting their cases reopened and winning. Some people lost. It was it was kind of a mixed bag. And for context, correct me if I'm wrong, but these were folks who basically were undocumented. Uh, these were or... people who had come to the country legally okay. who, for one reason or another, had, had their green card revoked because they committed a crime or something. And... You know, In some uh, cases, like, petty crimes, right? Some of them were, yeah, like, DUIs or, like, 
speeding or something. You know, at the end of the day, like some people had serious crimes, and and but at the end of the day, you know, my my feeling on it was, you know, we have a legal system in this country, and if if the punishment for your crime is death, the legal system should and should should hand down that punishment. Like in Jimmy's case, the punishment that the legal system handed down was, you know, six months in jail and probation or something. Um, if 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 the if the state wanted him dead, they should have given him the death penalty. You know, they have the option to do that, and they chose not to. And so, you know, we thought that it was, you know, the, the legal system played itself out. Uh, these people had sentences; they served their sentences. At that point, you're supposed to be rehabilitated, not not punished again. And when he went back to, I know he eventually passed away, but how did that? happen when he went back to Iraq? Uh, he ended up getting deported. Uh, they sent him to Najaf, which is like a Shia kind of stronghold. They weren't even sent him to Baghdad for whatever reason. I think we ended up finding out it was because like there was like no flight to Baghdad, so they like sent him to a place where like Christians are targeted. And yeah, he you know he 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 had like sort of some uh, psychological issues and and, and you know uh, mental disabilities, and um, he diabetic and didn't have access to insulin, and just ended up uh, dying there. I can see why that would be hard. And I was going to ask you, uh, actually, when I asked about the challenges, I was going to ask, are there times when you think, like, we should have done more? But you talked about that in in this case. But are there any other situations where you think, oh, we should have done more? I don't know. Yes. The answer is always yes. When I say we, it's like, is it, you know, like, whose responsibility is it? Is it the collective community? Is it mine personally? Like, like I do everything I can. I, I I think most of the time I probably do more than I should in a in a like personal sense. Like I, I you know maybe shouldn't be spending eighty percent of my time that I could be using like building my career on Assyrian stuff. I don't know. I take it as you will. I you know I I think I, I I do I do what I can. I help as many people as I can. You know we get a lot of requests for people that just have visa issues and like. You know, now a lot of people just come to me because, like, their cousin's stuck in Iraq or they need help with a visa or they need, there's like some like personal kind of issue like that. And we help anybody that we can. I mean, my my general feeling is if an Assyrian is coming to me for help and I have the capacity to help them, I should. I don't feel any guilt. I mean, I don't feel guilt in the sense that, like, in the broad sense that we, like, I mean, you know, I'm being selfish or I could be doing more. On, on the individual cases, sometimes, like, you don't win all the time. And, and, and in politics, especially if you're a Syrian, you, you win way less than you lose. And the losses kind of stick with you. Um, those I take a little more personally because it's like someone you know, someone, you know, like. Or you got to know along yeah, the way. Yeah, or you got to know their family. And it's just, mm-hmm. man, like, that, that stuff, that stuff, like, sucks. Yeah. That part of it sucks. You've talked a lot about coalitions uh, from your work in Chicago with Reverend Jackson. Like, you built a coalition coalition in some way, um, but also like coalition with other um, senators and stuff. I've also noticed that you work pretty closely with the Armenian community. Um, we have an Armenian uh, state yeah. rep that you seem to know here in oh, Michigan, Mari Manoogian. Yeah. Mari's awesome. <laughs> um, or just, you know, you seem to be involved in, um, with other Armenian things. Why do you think it's important to build those kinds of coalitions with people who have similar struggles yeah. to Assyrians. I mean, there's a, a, 
million reasons why we should have those those coalitions. I think that you know the, the the biggest one is particularly with Greeks and Armenians. Are you know we suffered in the same genocide. We you know we all suffered in Safo. You know we live in a lot of the same places, and a lot of us, myself included, have Armenian blood. Like I'm a quarter Armenian, so like I'm Armenian. Like I care about Armenians because I'm Armenian, and uh, I feel like sometimes Assyrian is the dominant gene, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, you know. But you know those are groups. In the case of the Armenians and the ANCA in particular, like they have. A very sophisticated operation in DC and for like years Assyrians had been trying to like build a relationship with them and I just don't think Assyrians brought enough to the table politically to kind of like be partners and so like when I came to that you know uh, Aram Hamparian who's the executive director of the Armenian National Committee of America and he's their headquartered in DC you know I met him when I came to DC I was 23 he kind of mentored me in a lot of ways and, and really was supportive and but our relationship with them didn't really take off until 2014 when, you know, I was a much more, I don't want to say sophisticated, but I was a much more developed political professional by then. And I brought something to the table and and I could do heavy lifting on my own. And so like, you know, there was a a much, there was a much more compelling reason for us to all kind of work together. And um, so we're like, I mean, we're like just locked tight with the Armenians and the Greeks, um, with the ANCA and then with the Hellenic American Leadership Council, who's run by a guy named Andy Zemanides, who's like, just one of the greatest people you'll ever meet. Um, brilliant guy, just just a political machine in, of, in and of himself. Um, and you know, like we're just—I mean, those guys are like my brothers. We're like, we're we're always in lockstep. Like, there's no there's no space between us. Like, I've noticed that the um, Syrian American Organization of Southern California has also been doing a lot of work with. Um, the Armenian community in LA, where yeah, the most Western, Armenians live. Yeah, with the Western region there. Yeah, no, they're, they're, it's a it's a great group. I, I like that group a lot. Um, I'd actually introduced them like to to the oh. Armenians, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we had like, kind of made some connections for them. You know, they were looking for some relationships in California and the West Coast, and I'm like, look, these are the only guys I like there, in in the political sense. So I'm like, this group is it's young people. They're they're doing things the right way. They're they're doing it locally. Um, the ANCA Western region now is run by a guy named. Armin Sahakian, who's a very dear friend who was here in D.C., another just hilariously brilliant guy. Yeah, they, they, they do a good job. You know, I, I like that group. They keep it local. They, they understand, like, how to build sort of local organizing. Um, and, uh, yeah, good, good people. I'm, I'm, you know, just happy to see that relationship expand beyond me because a lot of times, you know, like, it's, it's, it's you know, I don't want to be the only one sort of carrying that, that load. And so, yeah, they're awesome dudes. Um, great people. Let's talk about the Armenian genocide and how it was sure. recognized yeah. officially by the U.S. government um, this this year, right? Yeah, legislation or, or, or the president's proclamation? Which one are we talking um, about? We can talk about both. Sure. Um, what do you think that meant to the Armenian community and what is it that Assyrians could take away from that happening. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, I mean, we were part of, it's, to me, I, I'm, I'm one of those folks who sees Armenian genocide as a proper noun. You know, it's, it's, it's recognizing what happened to all of us. In the case of the legislation, we work with the Armenian National Committee on that legislation. The legislation actually, it mentioned SAFO in the legislation. The, the, the genocide was recognized, you know, for us sort of directly in the, in the legislative 
in the legislation that passed the Senate and the House, uh, I think, you know, in the in the president's proclamation, it, it was a big deal. I think it was, you know, uh, for us, you know, really important uh, to sort of, you know, see our country recognizing the the, the, the plight of, of our people historically. We had, you know, the Armenians helped us a lot when we were trying to get the ISIS genocide recognized. Um, and so, you know, it was for us, it was really great to sort of be there for them, too. There was some concern about the president not mentioning Assyrians in his proclamation. My conversations with the White House about that were basically the, the message I got from, from folks very high up in the administration was that this was something most people in the White House didn't want to do. But the person who wanted it recognized was Joe Biden. He was the one who was like, we're going to do this. And a lot of staff didn't want to do it. I wasn't going to be the person who sort of torpedoed the whole thing because I wanted to like fight about you know, the fact that they didn't mention Assyrians. You know, we, we, we made our case of what it should reflect and we, we didn't quite get what we wanted. I think I think next year we I probably guess that we probably will. I think we're, we're going to have sort of a ability to, to, to do that in a, in a more meaningful way. But, yeah, you know, like I'm not. I'm Armenian, so like I'm not gonna make a fight about it with the with the White House uh, to like torpedo something that's like for my people because you know it didn't say exactly what I wanted it to. But it was a huge. I mean, it was a monumental moment. It was the U.S. you know standing up to Turkey, um, who is a horrible ally if you can call them that. I mean, this is it's a, just the worst ally ever. And I think you know it, it shows a shift in U.S. policy and is a reflection of the burgeoning strength of the Armenian American community. I that day I thought of Samantha Power because when I read. The Education of an Idealist, she talked about how entirely devastated she was when yeah. President Obama didn't um, mention the Armenian genocide. You and I both. Yeah. Her, her and I both. Yeah. So, yeah. I still, I told her she owes us an apology personally. Like, I want her to come apologize to me, but um, <laughs> she, she hasn't done it just quite yet. But we'll, we'll see. I'll, maybe next time I see I'll remind her. <laughs> say, you know, you still owe me an apology personally. <laughs> um, no, look, I, you know, I, I was one of those people who just idolized Barack uh, when he was a, you know, local politician, when he was a community organizer. I volunteered on his Senate campaign back in 2004. I met him in 2003. Before How did he you meet him? So I was, so I was, it's funny, I was sort of voluntold into politics <laughs> okay. um, by my late uncle, Raman Oshana, who was just... A, a kind of a hero in our in our community and, and one of the most amazing people. Um, but my uncle Raman, so the, the short version of it, my cousin Ninos, Raman's son, uh, we went to high school together. He was a wrestler and he had a wrestling meet one day and I Raman drove me to the to the meet to the match because uh, I wasn't old enough to drive. And uh, after the match, we went to like an Assyrian club, uh, like the Assyrian social club. And uh, Raman had invited an alderman named Joe Moore, who was an alderman in the 49th Ward. And my uncle, in his like kind of brooding way, he goes, Steve, you're going to volunteer for Joe. And I'm like, all right, Khalil, like, whatever, you know, whatever you like. And he goes, no, no, you're going to help him. And I'm like, cool. He's like, and you know, and this alderman was like, yeah, happy to have you come volunteer. And so I volunteered for him, like knocking on doors, hanging, hanging up stuff. Um, so I was voluntold into politics. And 
every month the 49th ward would have like a monthly meeting um and this one month and there was a guest speaker every time and uh this one month we had at this like two-story mexican restaurant i'm like signing people in and the meeting started and this guy walks in and he's like and i'm like you're late i'm just i didn't look up from my paper i'm like you're late uh he goes oh it's like i know i'm sorry I'm, I'm one of the i'm the speaker i'm like i'm like you're still late uh and I'm like, just sign in. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm just heading out to speak. I'm like, you still have to sign in. And How old were you? Like 16. <laughs> uh, no, 17, 17. Um, and I'm like, you got to sign in. Uh, and so <laughs> he's like, we're just, you know, he's just, we exchanged a couple words. And he goes, he's like, he's like, what's your name? And I put my hand on I'm like, Steve O'Shaughnessy. And he's like, it's Barack Obama. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Um, Was there any part of you that thought this guy is one day going to become a president and I just spoke to him like this? You know, at at that particular moment where I'm like, you're late, you got to sign in. uh, No. (laughs) Um, But, you know, after I heard him speak at the at the ward meeting and, you know, just talked to him a little bit afterwards and told him about my plans for college and things like that. you know, uh, a couple, he would run for Senate later and, and they asked me if I wanted to, you know, volunteer. And at the time, his like political director was a guy named Dan Showman. Former uh, guest of the podcast. F- former guest, yeah. Dan, Dan is the man. Um, <laughs> Dan's awesome. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, like I was, I was in college when he ran for Senate and I was organizing on college campuses and, and proselytizing to him. So like, I worshiped Barack Obama. Um, like, most Assyrians probably listening to this who knew me back then, like they made fun of me at the time that this guy's going nowhere. And I said, just you wait. <laughs> um, I just, I worshiped him and I, always, and I talked to him about the genocide so many times and he's so like, he, he felt so deeply about it and swore up and down. He was going to, you know, do everything he could to recognize it when he was a Senator. He, you know, he was great on the issue. He was on the right side of it. When he didn't recognize it, like, I was devastated. I went through the denial phase where I'm, like, trying to say, like, oh, well, he said meds again, and it's the same thing, and I'm, like, trying to, you know, justify it to myself, but... When I like, that was kind of like when like my cynicism like set in in politics. When like the guy who I just like 100% believed in with like everything I had let me down so much, it was tough. And so you know, for me, I don't know. I I always took it personally. Uh, and I one time told him he owed me because my birthday is April 24th, and so like it's on you know uh-huh. the genocide uh, memorial. And so I told him he owes me a better birthday present. Uh, what did he say? So he didn't think it was as funny as I did. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't think so. No, no. <laughs> oh. Speaking of former President Barack Obama, um, when he was in office, there was a coalition of Assyrians from across the country who got to go to the White House yeah. and had a meeting with, I think, Ben Rhodes, right? Well, yeah, we met with Ben yep. and, and some other folks, Andy Kim, um, who was the Iraq advisor, who's now a congressman in New Jersey. Uh, but yeah, Ben was like the kind of main. And he was the national security He was a deputy national, or deputy, deputy national. national security advisor, yeah. But Ben was kind of the... I, don't, I was going to say the Serrano Bergerac. I'm, I'm, I need to get my like. I need to get my 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 literary metaphors <laughs> right. References, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you know, he, he ben, ben was sort of the um, the mind behind a lot of the the foreign policy, uh, national security policy. If so, if for those who may not understand, like the circle of the the president of the United States, how close was Ben Rhodes to the president in terms of like his work and you know. I mean 
to put it in perspective, like Ben was like one of like three people who had Oval Office privilege. Like Ben could walk into the Oval Office and talk to the president, and he was like one of a handful of people who could do that. He was a very trusted advisor. Uh, ben is also he's you know a very like cynical guy, but he's very like just deeply passionate and, and caring. Like he has a very strong moral compass, but there is like a deep like cynicism. And actually, that's kind of like why I I like Ben and I kind of got along with him because like we both kind of hated a lot of the trappings of Washington and like some of the nonsense because we were just very like straightforward and like do the right thing and kind of people. And uh, Ben 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 is an awesome guy, but yeah, he was yeah. I mean, he's about as high up as you get in terms of like that kind. Role. Uh, his not his most recent book, but the book before that. I love that book. It's one of my favorite books that I read uh, that year. And one of the reasons why I liked it was because he came across exactly the way you just <laughs> described him, which is like there's cynicism for sure, but he also believes that you should do everything you possibly can to move the world forward as it should be yeah. um, and not just settle for the world as it is. Yeah, I've never read any of his books. Um, very good writer generally, um, but I've never read his books. I always thought he like wanted to write fiction if I'm not mistaken. I, I remember huh. him mentioning like fiction. But so yeah, the, the um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, I think, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, it's funny, <laughs> he mentioned the Armenian genocide like not recognizing it in one of his books and a friend of mine at the time was like reading it and she's like, he mentions you in his book and I was so mad because I thought he was talking about me personally. Like, what did he say? Because normally if someone's going to like write about you in their book, like as a courtesy, they like, you know, send you the excerpt so you can like see it. And so when they're like Ben Rose, I'm like, what did he say? Like, what, <laughs> like this, what a jerk. And I'm like, I assumed it was bad. And it turned out it was just about the Armenian genocide. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't the personal slight. Um, um, so, about that meeting at the White House, how did it come about? How did you all decide who was going <laughs> to attend? Um, so basically, the, the Chaldeans and Assyrians were both working on trying to get a meeting with the White House. The Chaldeans in Detroit were working with a guy who's a close friend of mine, Dr. Jim Zogby, um, who's part of, we're, we're part of the Ethnic Council and the DNC together. So Jim was working... And DNC, I know you mentioned it, but I just wanted... Democratic, Democratic National, National Committee. Yeah. And so uh, so Dr. Zogby was working with the Chaldeans on getting them a meeting with the White House. Um, my uncle Raman, my late uncle Raman, rests his soul um, in his similar like way that he always does with me. Like when he volunteered me for stuff, he like called me one day and like I knew like everything. He always asked me for like these crazy big things and like asked in a really casual way. Like I need to talk to Obama about this. <laughs> And you know, and you know, because like, and like, Raman was like, Uncle my Uncle Raman was a guy who like I could never say no to. Like he just, he, he I mean, he he's the most amazing person I've ever known. And um, you know, uh, so he just called me. He's like, I need you to set up a meeting with the White House. I'm like, okay. He's like, we're gonna be in D.C. like in two days. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, it needs to be high level. I'm like, okay. <laughs> And he's like, I need you to invite these people. I'm like, absolutely not. Uh, and uh, I'm like, I'll, you know, but he's like, listen, you know, it, it, it was supposed, he, they wanted it to be like a big thing. And I'm like, we can bring like three people. And, you know, um, you know, these, these were folks that I didn't really work with. And, you know, I, I met with them and I, and, I, and I explained to them, you know, how sort of we're going to go about this. So I reached out to the White House to set that meeting up with Ben and our a friend of a colleague 
at the White House was like, hey, like, you know, we're setting up this meeting with, uh, with Jim Zogby and the Chaldeans. Like, would you guys mind doing this together? And Jim and I talked and we we're just like, yeah, like, of course, we'll do it together. Like, no, no problem. That's actually how I met Nathan Kalasho is he was one of the guys who came. And that's how we met at the White House, July 31st, 2014. I always joke it's our anniversary. So, like, on July 31st, I'm like, I said, I'm like, happy anniversary. Um and, and Nathan was also a former guest of the podcast. Yeah. Um, there's another person in that photo who's also been on the podcast, and that's Martin Yamada. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Martin yeah. Martin was one of the people that I had I had brought. My uncle wanted mm-hmm. me to bring them because him they were part of the federation, mm-hmm. um, and my uncle wanted was part of the federation. He wanted the federation to be at the meeting. Um, it was actually only them. I think it was just me, Martin, and his father, if I'm not mistaken. It's funny. Like when I met Nathan, I actually like. I I never thought I'd talk to him again. Like, I literally never thought. And then I, like, I've, like, been to his wedding and, like, all his siblings' weddings. And, like, (laughs) we're, like, you know, super close friends. And, uh, yeah, literally never thought I'd see that guy again. And then we're just, like, best friends. Uh. Um, So tell me about that. Tell me about that meeting. Like, what was the... Was there an ask? Uh Um, There wasn't a great ask. I mean, there was, you know, it was a lot of, like older Assyrian Chaldean guys. So it was a lot of, you know, pounding the table and talking about like how bad things are and how much help we need. And, um, you know, I, I came prepared. So, so Dr. Zogby and I, like we met beforehand and we're like, okay, these are the things we're going to ask for. And so we, you know, we, like we were prepared, but you know, a lot of it was to give like sort of like the, the folks in the community a chance to, to talk to the white house and, you know, an access that maybe otherwise didn't have. And so, but it's funny, like, you know, I always tell people like when you're in meetings like that, like they're sizing you up too, right? Like they're sizing you up as like, are you somebody who they can work with? And after that meeting, it was me and a couple of other people who had like a second meeting with the White House. And then after that, it was just me and Dr. Zogby. And like, that was it. Like they didn't want to talk to anybody else. Um, what uh, came of that meeting? Um, Nothing like tangible. I mean, you know, that was the first conversation we had. I mean, that was like the first, that was right when ISIS invaded. Uh, it was a week after that meeting that ISIS invaded the Nineveh plane, which anniversary is today, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that was sort of like the first, that kind of started the, the, the process. And that was where, you know, the, the dialogue opened. And later, when the Nineveh plane was invaded, that's when we started talking about like airstrikes and, you know, military support and mm-hmm. aid and things like that. Um, but that that was sort of where we first talked about aid. It's where we first talked about sort of direct support for Christians um, and, you know, kind of the broader ambitions of our, of our people. Um, recently, we've seen an uptick in the number of Assyrians uh, running for political office all over the country, yeah, um, which is a welcome change. It's um, and lots of them young people. Um, how do you think this impacts the standing of Assyrians nationally in the United States or yeah. globally? So I'm, I'm going to correct what you said. Okay. Um, it's not that it's there's an uptick of Assyrians running. There's an uptick of Assyrians winning. Okay, fair um, enough. There's been Assyrians running for a long time, but they're winning now. Uh, I think it's great, and you know I. Love like there's a I think there's a blueprint for Assyrians running for office. Like five years ago, I put a post on Facebook. I'm like, are there any Assyrians who want to run for office? Like you know, let, let's do this. And a couple of people raised their hands, and you know, 
five years later, we have in Illinois, I think four elected officials and uh, a couple in, in other places. And so I think it's great. Collectively raises our profile, our power, our, our ability to, to get things done, large and small, locally, federally. Um, you know, I, I'm super proud of my cousin, Mary, who I have to have, give a shout out to. She ran against an 18 year incumbent, first time running for office. Her father had, had passed away by then, wasn't there to like help her. You know, Raman was like really involved in the community. She ran just the best campaign. It's like she was running for Congress. I mean, it was amazing. Got amazing endorsements. Um, you know, four people running in that field. So I, I have to, I have to say, like that was one of the most impressive things I've seen in a Syrian dude. And I'm biased naturally, <laughs> but I think objectively, even the people who didn't support her came to me and said, like, yeah, she did amazing. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but there is objective uh, science behind this. There is currently a bill, I think, um, that I want to say the sponsor is uh, Josh Harder from California. California. Yeah. My uh, former uh, home. Okay. <laughs> no, I he was never yeah. my congressman because he won recently after I had moved here. But um, there's currently a bill that he sponsored, I think, like recognizing. Um, Somalia, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I haven't, to be perfectly honest like I haven't sort of I wasn't part of crafting that bill mm-hmm. um, I had a couple of congressional offices reach out to me uh, yeah no it's it, you know I, I think anytime that there is recognition like these resolutions that recognize things it, you know it's important you know we've done a number of these non-binding resolutions we actually had a resolution on the floor in 2015 that was the first bill in Congress to ever mention Somalia, to ever mention like the recognition of Somalia, we, we ended up not being able to, to get it up to vote uh, before the, the bill expired. And so we, you know, we didn't bring it back. Um, yeah, those, non, those non-binding like resolutions are great. I think it's, you know, it's really important that um, there are other sort of groups and people, you know, uh, pursuing that. Uh, Josh is great. He actually is really close to the Assyrian community. He was raised by an Assyrian, like his neighbor, who like she made him dolma. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've heard the story. He's cool. Him. No, I I like Josh. Like I, it's funny. Like when I, there was an Assyrian who was working for him when he was running, and I just remember getting like a call on my cell phone, and it was Josh, and he was like, "I'm running for office. Like, do you have any advice?" I'm like, "Yep." I got you, man. Like, here's everything you need to know <laughs> about Assyrians. And, well, because, you know, he just wants to kind of know, like, what, what are the issues in Washington that are affecting Assyrians that, you know, he can be aware of. And I, honestly, I didn't think he'd win. Uh, he I thought, got reelected. Yeah. Too. Well, reelection. Just yeah. Barely. He, I mean, he barely squeaked, squeaked by mm-hmm. Jeff Denham, uh, who's a good guy. I, I like Jeff. He was he was pretty good to us. He was uh, pretty um, like he I've seen him at various Assyrian functions yeah, and he, stuff. He, he, he had was, good relationships. Yeah, he did. And, you know, so like I just it was a good year for Dems. I mean, but yeah, Josh ran a great campaign. I I didn't think he was going to win. Um, the, the Democratic wave was a little bit stronger than I expected it to be. Um, he, that was in 2018, the first time, right? Yes. And then 2020, he yeah. got reelected. Um, I was in uh, Turlock. Uh, I think it was like a Christmas or Easter, um, but he had a he spoke um, in Turlock, yeah. and I went and listened to him talk, which is where I heard him talk about his neighbor who made him dole. Yeah. All right, I know you got to get to a wedding, so <laughs> I've got a lightning round Let's do um, it. about DC. Let's go. Mainly because I want to visit again, and so I need to like take notes. So I uh, yeah I will I will caveat this by saying like I think DC is the most amazing place in the world. It's my favorite city in America. Uh, like it's I I 
fall in love with it every single day. So I love I love talking about DC. So let's let's get the all right. Let's go. Favorite museum. Oh, good question. Uh, Air and Space. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, my husband's giving a thumbs up because yeah. we love that one. Um, favorite monument, but here's here's the thing. I need a daytime one and a nighttime one. Okay, uh, daytime Jefferson Memorial. Okay. Um, nighttime uh, World War II Memorial. Oh, Yeah. okay. You didn't mention the ones I thought you would mention. Lincoln? I love the Lincoln Memorial. And I- then the MLK one. It's good, awesome. yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, it's very powerful. Anyway, sorry. This is the lightning round where I'm supposed to ask you questions. No, let's, let's do it. Okay, so now that you've talked about wanting to be a chef, favorite restaurant? In D.C.? Yes. Okay, I always have to caveat this. Okay. Because, like, like, favorite restaurant, is it, like, Michelin star restaurant? Is it hole in the wall fast? Like, you know, like, what are okay, we talking about? Okay, let's do a Michelin star and a hole in the wall. Okay. Uh, Michelin star... Oh, that's a good question. Um, I really like the plume at the Jefferson Hotel. It's just, it's a super old school, like European fine dining restaurant. It's just, it's so old school. Like more like a little bit more casual, but upscale one. Um, You know, there's a lot of those. Uh, There's, let's see. I'm going to come back to that one because there's so many. Rasika is probably one of my favorite restaurants. It's an Indian restaurant. Uh, I really like Rasika. Hole in the wall places. Too many good ones. They're mostly in the suburbs. A lot of them closed down with gentrification. Uh, let's see. There's a great, like, kind of... It's not a hole in the wall, per se, but it's a place called Donburi uh, in Adams Morgan. And they make Donburi, which is like a Japanese, like, uh, you know, rice bowl thing. Super good. It's like 10 bucks. It's just like a counter. There's nothing else there. I love that place. So many good ethnic restaurants. Just like random Thai restaurants in the suburbs. There's a great Vietnamese place called Four Sisters. It's awesome. I mean, it's yeah, there's... There's a lot of good stuff there. All um, right. And then since you were you worked as a bartender, favorite yeah. bar? Favorite bar. Oh man. Uh, probably the the quill at the Jefferson Hotel. I think that's like the, you know, caveat I actually tended bar there. So oh. I, I, I have, yeah, I have a bit of a bias there. Uh, I love that hotel. It's just such an old school, like kind of cool DC hotel, very quiet. I take clients there and stuff now and it's, you know, uh, I still I still love going back there. Uh, favorite political event that you were happy to witness from DC? Um, the staff inaugural ball for President Obama's second inauguration. Uh, it was really cool. Like I, I, I wasn't staff. I didn't work at the White House, um, but they gave me tickets, uh, which was super neat. And uh, I saw Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett perform like in a really kind of like intimate setting. It was it was super cool. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, favorite DC tradition. Cherry Blossom Festival. It's a little touristy, but I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's so like... I buy into it every year with the selfies <laughs> and the, like I can't like and I've seen it every year and I, I, I love going out and biking or like driving around like you know in a convertible or something it's like it's just like a, I love the trail it's such a pretty thing that just comes around once a year it's there for like a fleeting moment I think cherry blossoms are really special. Um, when we were in DC, we walked from, like basically we walked all the way to the um, MLK uh, monument and then walked to Roosevelt and then like walked all the way to the Jefferson monument. But I think, um, but there's this like great 
picture that I see every year around the Cherry Blossom Festival where it's like the cherry blossom, but you see the Jefferson Monument yep. on the I have, other I have side. like 20 pictures on my phone from like every Beautiful. year. Yeah. We, <laughs> I, can't, I cannot help myself. I, I take, I take like pensive photos of the reflecting pool. Like I just, I can't help. Of course. I, just, I love the city so much and like I just, I can't stop like taking pictures of it. I totally understand. I lived in San Francisco and I had oh, yeah. a bazillion photos of the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah. even though I saw it every day. San so. Francisco is the, probably the second best city in America, tied, <laughs> tied with Seattle. It's like, it's DC, San Francisco, Seattle, in my opinion. I've never been to Seattle, but I hear great things. Really awesome place. Yeah. Really awesome I'm sure place. I would like it. One final question we always ask all of our guests sure. is if you could say one thing to all of the Assyrians listening from all over the world, what would you say? Oh my God. Can I say something? I want to like, okay, so what I would want to say is going to like upset a lot of people. Um, but so maybe I, I'll say it. move out of your parents' house. Like that's going to, that's probably like my, I, honestly, like I, you know, uh, the advice I used to give people is just make sure you're successful at whatever you do, right? There's, there's this idea that like everyone wants to like go help the Assyrian community and be an activist. If you're not good at your profession, if you're not successful, you have no use to the community. It doesn't matter what you do. You could be a good actor. You can be a good bartender. I don't care what you do. Be good at it. Be successful. You're going to be able to help them. But I do, you know, like I, I do think one of the things that's important for our community is to sort of you know, expand our, our horizons and our minds a little bit. And I, and I, you know, I just, I don't think like being 30, living with your parents in Skokie is the way to do that. I just, I think, I think like as an adult, you, you need to like go see the world and travel and, and, and be on your own and like come into yourself as a person. I just, that's the one thing I would love to sort of see more of is Assyrians like embracing their individuality, which a lot of them do, but I think as a whole, we still are very traditional, like you don't leave until you get married. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm dreading when this airs, I'm gonna have so many like parents just, just, <laughs> just like m- coming at me like marauders. <laughs> Uh, for saying that, but I just I, th- I think we gotta like you know go find yourself like, and, and I, if you're in your twenties, you're in college, like go go experience the college life, you know, like go live on campus, go live somewhere else, study abroad, do do these things, like just find what drives you as a person, and and, and I think like when you sort of step out of the very tight knit and an amazing sort of environment that that we have in our community it is an amazing thing but when you step out of that you you probably find that you're a very different person than you had anticipated and i just i you know i love like when i see these assyrians like pursue their like these their individuality like one of my favorite people is benil dariush i love benil and i you know like I, I love him as a fighter and just as a person i just you know like you know he like went out and did this thing that was not a lot of people do and his parents were like go to medical school and he's like i want to punch people in the face and there's just a lot of you know cool and there's a lot of cool artists nowadays i like i, I just love seeing some of this stuff that's being produced in our community and uh, i just think the best way to do that is you know explore your individuality and and i guess 
guess that's the, the way I, maybe the way I put it uh, was too succinct to say move out of your parents' house, but move out of your parents' house. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Um, it was nice to connect with you here in Michigan. I hope to see you in D.C. soon. You got you got to come visit. D.C. is amazing. I love it. I can't. I'll, I'm giving my pitch. I should be getting like a royalty <laughs> from like the D.C. tourism board for this because you know. Uh, but it's it's an amazing city. Can't wait. We'll introduce you to the small community we have there. They're all brilliant and amazing, uh, and you're going to love it, I think, as much as I do. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode and others with everyone you know. See you next Tuesday.